Hi there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we interview makers and doers from the worlds of product management, design, startups, and marketing. We also have two other podcasts, Intercom on Product, where Intercom co-founder Des Trainer and Intercom SVP of Product Paul Adams discuss their latest thoughts on how to build successful product at scale. And we have Scale by Intercom, where we explore how businesses are driving growth through customer relationships. One podcast you definitely didn't know we made is one called Engineer Chats. And that's because it's an internal podcast here at Intercom. It was hosted by Jamie Osler, a former senior product engineer here. In each episode, Jamie sat down to talk with a variety of different folks on a variety of different topics related to engineering. So today, we bring you a sonic window into all things engineering at Intercom. We've taken the best bits from the show, from the story of the worst outage we've ever had to how legal and engineering teams can work better together. First up, disambiguating, the act or process of distinguishing between similar things and meanings in order to make the meaning or interpretation more clear or certain. Mike Stewart, former senior principal engineer at Intercom, sat down to talk with Jamie in October 2020 about that word and why he uses it so much at work. Here's Jamie. Something I've seen you do with great results when approaching a project that's a little bit woolly and not super well defined in terms of what success means and like how best to approach it is what you sometimes refer to as disambiguating. One of the first things you do when you're approaching one of these projects. Could you tell us what you mean when you say that? Yeah, disambiguating. That's a word I never used much before I came to Intercom, and I have used so much since I got here. Probably should have used it in previous places before, but uh, it's such a good word, you know? It's not even that the framing is that it's just, you know, for woolly projects or for ambiguous projects. I almost think this is a very general verb as part of our entire like building process that goes way past engineering and also like into a lot of the stuff that like PMs do of figuring things out. So if you go right back to the pre-project state, like obviously we have teams, they have areas of ownership and they figure out roadmaps from them, right? So like Mm -hmm. they're, you know, the team is responsible for the entire marketing engage outbound surface area and they own being successful within that. That is an ambiguous problem. And like the process of figuring out like where we sit within that and of all of the things that we could do and the ways that we could do them, like narrowing in, maybe not 100% figuring out, but narrowing in and closing down that solution space to get a tighter and tighter view of, oh, within all the things you could do within the engaged space, like these are the ones that we think are actually the most important, the ones customers are looking for the most, the highest return on investments. And like, that's a process of disambiguation in my head, which is you have a wide solution space, i.e. ambiguity about like where you should go within the many different places you could go within that solution space. And it's the process of like winding that down based on evidence and decisions and calls and everything else that you, you put in there. And so when I apply that to like an engineering project, there's the same sort of thing that like a couple of stages down the pipeline of say once we've decided to build a new messenger with a public platform within it for a public platform framework where you can build apps and embed them in the messenger. Okay, we've decided to do that. We've narrowed in on that. Now there's the entire solution space of what that means, all the different shapes that that could take, how it could manifest. 
and how you could build it. And like, I just think it's disambiguation all the way down mm-hmm. until you get down to the point where the ambiguity that you're thinking of is like, yeah, well, you know, we know we want to embed an iframe that has a certain interface and we know we want like this sort of interface the developers move back and forth. And then like, how do we actually implement that and tech design it and how do we write the code to do it? Those are the even more zoomed in levels. Mm-hmm. You're still working through ambiguity there. So right. I think I've just said that disambiguation is the entire product development process. You've, you've really narrowed that down as well. Um, <laughs> maybe you could disambiguate that a little bit. Mike has a great way of visualizing the process of disambiguating. Yeah, well, I, I almost think of this as like, if you've ever seen one of those videos of like the universe at different orders of magnitude that goes mm-hmm. from, you know, zooming all the way out to like the Earth as a, as a dot in a, in a galaxy and zooming all the way through the human scale to the micro scale, right? And there's interesting structure at each of those levels. And in the same way, I think that there is interesting ambiguity at each of the zoom levels that you, you, you zoom in as things get more and more defined. The techniques are different when you're, you know, say, writing code and figuring out like, hey, what are my concepts in code and how should I structure this code versus when you're figuring out, hey, how should I tech design this and what are the data models and what are the moving parts versus like what's the solution versus what's the roadmap. I think I, I'm abstracting it very far as it's all, it's all disambiguation. Yeah, being, being very deliberate about what is you're attacking that at and what Zoom level you're attacking that is like the most important principle in my head. And it's, and it's where I think engineers can very naturally get sucked in to the deeper Zoom level of disambiguation of figuring out how to build something because that's something that's often more comfortable or an easier not to crack. So to connect all of this with a concrete example, Jamie presents this one. So... When we were looking at how the billing system sent data to Zora and how it tried to ensure that state was synchronized between the two, we had to have an understanding of how the current system did it in order that we could just just get that kind of disambiguation of the current system in place and break it down to its core core ideas and principles and see which one of which ones of those were relevant in uh, going forward. Um, so as part of that, you wrote up a document that explored how Zora's modeling of rate plan data over time worked and i think that was something that a lot of people wouldn't have dug into and at that level fully scoped it out what triggered you to think that that would be a useful thing to do and when do you know when to do that investigation and when not to yeah for sure i frame this in my head as like uh so in terms of the zoom levels we're talking about before this for me is like right in that tech design high level tech design zoom level right and we're Mm. we're you know in, in that point to recap like in billing we were at the point where, hey, we pretty firmly understand that we've got these two systems. We've got our own our own Rails app, and we've got this external Zora system. We know that at least you know for for a decent chunk of the future, we're going to have these two systems. We're we're not going to change that that constraint. We've got a lot built on the the two of them. It's not feasible to move off. We need to have the two systems in sync, and we need to have them agree with each other. And all of these problems that cause like stem from us being unable to have them agree with each other. We need those to go away. So we kind of understood that was the mission. And then it was the ca- a case of like, what technical solution is the way to accomplish that? So this is like high level tech design that we sometimes like call technical interconcept in intercom, although that's a super fluffy term. High level tech design is probably the more descriptive version of this phase. And in terms of techniques, I actually think like when I'm thinking about tech design and this high level sort of tech design or system design phase, what I almost always do is go to the models. Like... You know, there's a lot of surface area that you can try to understand. There's a lot of like things that are important about like how is your code structured and what what's moving around and what workers do you have and what's trying to do what. 
but like the fundamental concepts, the core concepts in the system, which are almost always the same as the data models in the actual database, like mm-hmm. the schema of them in your database or the like public API schema in your third party or whatever they are. They are the core concepts in the data models that are involved. And some famous computer scientist, I have no idea which or I'm making it up, is, is definitely expressed this sentiment of like the core of algorithms is data models. And like you can't devise an algorithm independent of a data model. And I think the same is true when you start talking about like systems and product features, like the data models are the fundamental of any design. So in this situation, the first thing that we did when we landed in billing was to understand our own data models. Because, you know, yep. for, for you and me, Jamie, landing in there, this was like the Wild West for us. We, you know, mm-hmm. most like most of Intercom, we had never seen the inside of this. It was a brave new frontier. So first of all, we had to understand, hey, what, what the hell are all these tables involved in our own system? We got to that understanding, I think, relatively quickly with the, with the aid of the previous team in San Francisco, built out that mental model. Then the next major piece that was missing that I think like we almost came to attack too late was let's really understand the data model of Zora, the system that we're digging into. Like the effort that that you were talking about, I think it was only maybe like a week or so of time where I was basically firing up a console, like poking the data models in Zora manually, changing something, running some commands to see what happened and like exploring a sort of black box style to understand understand mm-hmm. the data model. And at the end of understanding that, yeah, we could say that, hey, there's this big stack of models. The one, the really important ones are down here right at the leaf. They're like the rate plan charge segments or something that stored the, the guts of the data. And once you properly understand the core concepts and data models, then you can start building, you can start designing a system to around them. And that's particularly true when we talk about replication systems like this was, whose, whose fundamental job is... Mm-hmm reliably shuffle one set of data models and translate it into the semantically equivalent thing in another set of data models. So I think your original question, not for me not to lose sight of it, is how do you know when you should do that? And for me, that's actually a really simple one because it's always, I I am never comfortable moving forward with a technical design unless like I fully, fully properly understand the data models. And I'll tell you one place where I was burned by not deeply following that principle was later when coming to Salesforce, I got some understanding of the core concepts and data models, but Salesforce was a big, big world. So there was a lot of time pressure. Mm-hmm. And like, I did not go to the same depth of understanding of the data models as I did for Zora. And like, I think the same was true of everyone on the team. We didn't get to the same level of depth of data models. And I think, you know, we, we sort of feel the results of that in that we built something good, but like a year later, we've, after more context with those data models, we've realized, hey, we didn't understand them fully correctly the first time. We didn't map it fully correctly, the translation between Salesforce and our own system. And like, we have more work to do to, to repair that lack of knowledge. Uh, that's uh, super useful. That was a great chat about the, the way you disambiguate um, projects. I hope it was a great chat, Jamie, and I hope we got some useful content here. (laughs) Hashtag content. Earlier this year, if you're a user of Facebook, WhatsApp, or Instagram, you will no doubt remember that outage in October. It was Meta's longest global outage in its history. It all came down to a faulty configuration change on their end. So outages are not fun for anyone. Someone who particularly dislikes them is Intercom Principal Systems Engineer Brian Scanlon. Well, so I, I hate outages, uh. which is why I've 
dedicated my career to fighting them. Brian sat down to chat with Jamie about them in November 2020. I think actually part of the reason why I like outages or why I, I'm drawn towards them or I spend my time on them is because it's been pretty good for my career so far. And that's because I decided to take an interest in it, get involved in like running them, in thinking about them and being part of them and following up on them. Brian recalled some notable outages at Intercom. One of the most traumatic outages I was involved with, even though I wasn't actually there during the outage, was the Great Elasticsearch outage of January 2019. Someone who was there was Patrick O'Doherty, who was a senior security engineer here at the time. I remember wanting to be sick in a bin when I realized that Elasticsearch was empty. I was like, oh, this is so bad. This was a particularly spectacular one. And so the reason why I wasn't there was because I was at my 40th birthday drinks with some friends. It was like a Friday evening. And because we're not scared of shipping code to production on a Friday, I approved a pull request that was adding a subnet to our VPC AWS that late Friday evening. In between drinks? Uh, no, it was actually on the way. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I was sober at the time. Great. And... Yeah, so when that when that subnet was attempted to be added to our network inside of Amazon, the automation that we wrote in, we use a tool called Terraform to manage our low-level infrastructure inside of AWS. And we had a bunch of team modules, like you can kind of think of it like a bunch of reusable code that we wrote that try and simplify or, or make it easier to configure a bunch of infrastructure inside of AWS without with all of the settings and stuff that we want applied. And so this automation very diligently took the description of the subnet that we wanted to be added. But at the moment of application, AWS's APIs rejected it because there was an overlapping IP subnet or rather the subnet that was being configured overlapped with already existing one. And so at that point, the, the Terraform application process just kind of gave up, it stopped, mm -hmm. which, you know, in a bunch of cases is a completely reasonable thing to do. But unfortunately, the way we had implemented our Terraform module meant that it was removing all of the information about the routing tables that existed on the subnets and adding them back in while it was configuring all of these subnets. So... In effect, it had removed all of the routes, which are how a network knows how to get to the internet and other networks, which is pretty important. So at that point, when the configuration was applied, it has completely destroyed or taken off our, our network offline. So that's just the start. I mean, that's, that's bad to start, right? That's, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, so, so that took Intercom entirely offline. And then it took a while to get to the point of where we could roll back. By we, I mean, not me. I was enjoying my drinks at this point. <laughs> and so, but the, the team figured out a way of getting into our Terraform provisioning infrastructure and rolling back the configuration change. But unfortunately, in the meantime, other automation kicked in, this time some automation that was owned by AWS. So we use this technology called OpsWorks, which is a version of Chef, managed version of Chef to manage our Elasticsearch hosts. And it had very helpfully got this functionality called auto-healing built in, which we had enabled by default, into our host-level configuration. And if the hosts were uncontactable by the 
Opsworks control plane or like the Opsworks backend. Opsworks workflow system would attempt to auto heal the hosts in question because it figured, you know, something's gone wrong here. The OS is down, maybe ran out of memory or something, something bad has happened. So let's try and fix it. So just this Opsworks control plane decided to fix our entire infrastructure by uh, replacing the hosts. Unfortunately, we had been running Elasticsearch and still do with what's known as ephemeral storage. So that's host-based storage. So we're not using any magical cloud-based system that stores your data off in some mm-hmm. third-party system or some system off the host. It's just on a physical host. And if the physical host gets destroyed, the data is gone. And so that's what happened to every single host, every single Elasticsearch host. So every single Elasticsearch cluster lost every single piece of data, which is pretty bad because incre- like huge amounts of intercom are built on top of Elasticsearch. It's not the, the primary data store, as, I, as in we tend to write data to one data store, like say DynamoDB for our users, and then copy that data over to Elasticsearch for searching, and we can restore it. The process of getting all that data back via backups and having to redrive all of the changes since mm-hmm. our previous backups took a long, long, long time. Also, figuring out what on earth happened and where that data went to also took a long, long time. So we're talking about an eight-hour long outage here. So this was a big deal because it happened late on a Friday. It took a whole like huge number of people to get things back stable. We kind of knew about these problems, like having to redrive or like refill our Elasticsearch clusters from scratch. We didn't know about some of the dangers that were latent in our own automation and some of the automation at AWS. So that was interesting because we didn't, in following up to this, we didn't just go, okay, well, now we know about these two problems, let's fix those. We went off and looked for other kind of areas of automation that could bite us in kind of bizarre kind of situations. So we ended up doing a lot of things to be really good at being able to restore Elasticsearch clusters from different states, be able to redrive data at different times into our Elasticsearch clusters if should we ever fall behind or have some sort of similar disaster type situation. And you know, overall, we, we learned a lot from, from this gloriously bad outage. And the process was actually pretty good afterwards, what we, what we learned and how we disseminated that information. I can't remember who it was, but about an hour later, somebody like thanked me for causing this incident because they were like, they it's like, wow, you really shook a lot of stuff out of the tree here. Like this is this is going to be a really fun incident response. Basically, was like kind of the gist of it. it was like, oh wow, we are digging up stuff here. So that and it was. I mean, you it was a good like town hall incident response. Yeah. Our use of Terraform and our general maturity towards how we use tools, but are conscious that tools can hurt us as well. Just like respect power tools, you know, like infrastructure power tools are dangerous, you know, like they can move quickly and catch you by surprise. And I think like we learned our lesson that day. Yeah, I also got like a inside intercom talk out of it. And also I wasn't at the incident because I was in the pub for my birthday. It was great. It was the perfect incident. In December 2020, a Christmas I'm sure we'll all never forget, Intercom co-founder Kieran Lee joined Jamie to talk about speed and why Kieran cares about moving fast. I am a fundamentally extremely impatient person. And so that's one thing. If I can do something quickly or do it slowly, I personally would just rather do it quickly. You know, Intercom might seem like an old company, we're coming up on 10 years, but I honestly do believe that we're just getting started. We have so much to do. We're so ambitious. We can kind of see a picture in future of, of what we would like to be. This all-in-one tool that everyone in an internet business can use 
to talk to their customers and an interesting business of, of any size. And we're only scratching the surface there. And so we've just got a lot left to do. You know, one thing I really like from Stripe, cool company that I look up to, read a great blog post by Patrick McKenzie recently where he describes that they set their default operating cadence to run. They default to moving uncomfortably fast, to always asking if we can do the thing quicker this week instead of six months from now. And I just really like that personally. I like that. I think that sort of attitude has, ser- has served us really well. And I think it's a fun thing to always think about. Can you go faster and ask yourself that? If you make going fast critical to your company and something you do all the time, you tend to break less. Yeah. I don't know what, what, what we would have there. Move fast and break things within acceptable parameters. You know, it's okay to mm-hmm. it's okay to have outages. It's okay to have bugs. Obviously, certain categories of bugs you want to have less often than others but we have availability budgets and i'm not that interested i mean it's cool if we hit 100 percent availability on a quarter but you know if, if we do that maybe we should ask ourselves hey are some of the fundamental projects we're doing in this area are we not being risky enough could we take a little more risk to move quicker you know you should be you should be at a deliberate point in, in the spectrum and for sure you know we have a big responsibility we've lots of customers hundreds of thousands of people logging in whose job it is is to use our inbox to talk to their customers each day we can't just be like breaking their stuff by moving too fast or changing it so quickly that they don't even know how to use it anymore. That would that would be wrong. And so yeah, there are constraints that, that we have. But within those constraints, we should absolutely move as fast as we can. And we're moving as fast as we can through this episode. Next up, Intercom Senior Counsel Mina Polich. Mina is on our legal team with a focus on product and engineering. In January 2021, Mina and Jamie discussed how legal and engineering teams can work together. It's really important for us to understand the product because how can we possibly counsel the company on what regulations are going to impact us or what laws we have to follow if we don't actually understand what we're selling. So at a very basic level, I think from a strategic standpoint, we need to understand not only what we sell now, but what we wanna sell and how we wanna position ourselves and grow. And in that way, we can start building sort of projections of the things that we're going to need to keep an eye on from a legal perspective and just make sure that we're here sort of marching lockstep with the company and all of our clients in the company to get where we need to go responsibly without slowing anybody down. In a more, from a more tactical approach, I have found that understanding the company values and product is extremely helpful for negotiating with customers and even vendors. It it puts me in a much better leveraged position when I understand what we're trying to do. And then I can explain to our vendors, because we're trying to do this, we need you to be able to do this. Conversely, when I'm negotiating with customers, a lot of times the people on the other side of the table are other lawyers or procurement agents Mm -hmm. who are as technical, if not less so than myself. And so being able to actually explain what the product does in actual practice as sort of the lawyer that's saying, look, I know what your concerns are from a legal risk management perspective, but here's how the platform actually works. Here's how the product actually works in practice. And that's why it's not going to tip off this risk that you're concerned about. It's not going to trigger that risk that you're concerned about. I guess this works both ways, right? If if R&D have a better understanding of the kind of a, a high level legal overview of where the areas of concern might be, it, it helps them 
avoid unintentionally doing things or building products that would be risky or in violation of those laws. Yes, absolutely. And I think that sort of is the most important thing to sort of take away from or try to focus on building in the legal relationship with R&D. And certainly my first priority is really helping R&D understand that I'm not here to derail the amazing progress that we're making. And my team is not here to stop us from continuing to go to market with excellent product. Our team is just here to make sure that as we grow and it becomes harder to really keep tabs on everything every individual in the company is doing, that we continue to do so ethically and we continue to do so within the confines of the law. And when we can, that we try to manage that risk. And so I think that that is one of the most, one of the reasons that compliance by design is so important is that if we keep in mind sort of compliance requirements or compliance expectations, and we design towards those, a lot of times the designs that we're going to design changes we would make are going to be things that would actually benefit our bottom line. Like there may be an initial cost in terms of resource allocation, but in the long run and not even the super long run, in a lot of cases within you know six months to a year of pushing that feature out, we will see incredible benefit in terms of growth of revenue and growth of the types of leads we're able to generate and attraction of customers because they will trust us. My thanks to Jamie Osler, who created Engineer Chats, its new host, Brian Scanlon, and to all the guests today who kindly let us put their internal chats external. If you enjoyed today's show, why not leave us a review or give us a shout out on social? We love to see and hear what you think. That's all for today. We'll be back next week with another great episode. <laughs>